0: everyone, and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Investigates podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I will be your host for this episode. Thank you to all my listeners on my podcast and via YouTube. In a little over three months, you guys have downloaded the podcast or listened via YouTube almost 10,000 times, and we currently have an equal number of followers on Facebook. I appreciate everyone tuning in and spreading the word as we continue to grow and reach a wider audience. Before we get into this episode, let's cover the business. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email the host directly, my email is true blue crime Productions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make donations are on the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Any donation level helps, and it'll help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast, a thank-you message from the host, and some cool True Blue Crime merch. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much, and without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime Investigates. Today's episode is going to be somewhat unique because its lack of closure is not due to a lack of suspects, but it's because there are too many suspects at this point. In 2009, a woman walking her dog in a partially developed area on the outskirts of Albuquerque, New Mexico, located a human bone. A police investigation found 11 verified victims of homicide and one fetus in the area, and satellite imagery was used to show that someone had been visiting the area and burying bodies for years before the discovery. After developing a list of suspects, the list eventually focused on two people. One is in jail and the other is deceased. While people believe it is likely one of the men is responsible, there are other people of interest that are still being looked at today. In order to better understand this case, we'll look at the crime scene, the investigation, the victims, and the suspects. This is the story of the West Mesa Bone Collector. The desert outside Albuquerque, New Mexico is a high desert with sand, rock, and scrub brush dotting the landscape. As the metropolitan area of almost 1 million people expanded, it pushed out in all directions, and in 2006 developers eyed the area known as the West Mesa for housing and commercial construction. Back in 2006, housing prices were soaring and demand for new houses was incredibly high. Large tracts of land were being purchased and within a year or two entire subdivisions were springing out of the deserts outside the city. To fund the increased house prices and demand for new mortgages, banks used ARMS or adjustable rate mortgages. These loans offered low interest rates during the first three to five years of the mortgage with the expectation that housing value would increase and people could use their equity to obtain a better mortgage or sell their house to avoid the increased rates when the ARM expired. But the overinflated housing price bubble burst and suddenly people owed more money on their house than it was worth and with the lower rates on the arms expiring mortgages went from three to four percent to double digits or higher interest rates often doubling the amount someone owed on their mortgage the result was the abandonment of developments like the ones that had been planned in the west mesa this caused unseen issues because the landscape of the desert had been altered to prepare for the development But because it was not completed, this caused flooding whenever a storm dropped a large amount of rain in the area. Arroyos, which are dry washes that act as makeshift rivers during heavy rain, normally would carry flash flood level precipitation along predetermined paths that had been formed over thousands of years. When developers disturbed the arroyos to make way for roads and houses, the torrent of water found new paths often into pre-existing residential developments. After more than just a few flooded homes, the residents forced the developer that had abandoned the development to install a retaining wall that would direct the water away from the pre-existing homes and back along the path of the destroyed arroyo. The wall was completed in 2008, and on February 2, 2009, a woman was out walking her dog in the area of the abandoned development when the dog located a bone, a human bone this woman reported the find to the Albuquerque police and they launched an investigation. One human bone led to the discovery of 11 bodies of women and one body of a fetus, all buried in the West Mesa area. The case became known as the West Mesa Bone Collector. The discovery of the bodies should not have been a shock to the Albuquerque PD. One detective, the lone investigator working missing persons cases in the city, had noticed a disturbing trend involving young women involved in sex work going missing between 2001 and 2005. Eventually, a list of 15 names was compiled, but investigating missing women involved in sex work is difficult. I've talked about this before on my other podcast. Many sex workers live a transient lifestyle and are unfortunately involved in drugs as well as being the victims of sex trafficking. They often move between cities with no permanent address and can go months or years between communication with loved ones. Albuquerque is known for its high level of violent crime, so looking for missing persons was not as important as solving the growing number of homicides and crimes like armed robberies that were occurring at the time the women were, were reported missing. But when 11 homicide victims are found in a 95 acre spot of land, Albuquerque PD was forced into action nine of the victims were on the list of missing women one had not been involved in sex work and one was from out of town they were almost all hispanic and were victims of sex trafficking or sex work so we'll just take a quick break here to talk about what we've mentioned so far basically again back in the early 2000s most major metropolitan areas saw this huge spike in population there was a a move People coming into urban areas and the suburbs around these cities grew rapidly and this was a time in which you would have desert one day and within a few months you'd have a subdivision being put up outside of places like Albuquerque and it was really only because of the, the burst of the bubble that all of this development stopped and kind of froze development in its place And because that happened, this area went into this frozen period in time and it just so happens that this woman out walking her dog, they discover this human bone and they believe that the retaining wall and and some rainfall kind of redirected this, this water flow had eroded some of the dirt in the area and this is what actually carried this human bone to the surface so that it was able to be found. So it's not to say that if the area had had continued to go through its development that the construction workers wouldn't have located the bones themselves. Now you can get into all types of morality issues at that point of whether or not when money's involved, whether people would be willing to report finding what they believe to be human bones or whether some people might try to hide the fact that they found bones because they know that that's going to cause issues with development but again it never got to that point so you can only speculate whether or not if the development hadn't frozen whether they still would have discovered this it's, it's likely that they would have. They're eventually again going to find 11 skeletons over this 95 acre development. Uh, I, I would have to think that somebody at some point would have dug somewhere and located one of these graves And done the right thing and contacted the police. So it's likely it would have happened anyway. But because we have this pause in development, we have all of these victims being found. And like I said, there was one detective who was assigned to missing persons cases in the city, and they saw a disturbing trend of all these sex workers disappearing in a short amount of time. And one or two sex workers being reported as missing could be accounted for the fact that they moved on to a different city, that maybe they got out of sex work and were in hiding because they're afraid of, of their pimp or somebody finding them. And so one or two wouldn't have probably caused any eyebrows to raise. And I, and again, a lot of these sex workers are unfortunately teenage runaways. They are people who are already reported missing, and it's just that their lifestyle tends to have them out of contact with family for a period of time but the high number this 15 of them in a very considerably short amount of time that that really shouldn't be accounted for on just people moving on to different cities especially because some of these women are going to have children that are left behind that it is not going to make sense that they up and move to a different city and just abandoned their old life and so when these bodies are found again it's almost as if they were expecting at some point somebody to come across the bodies of these missing women and they knew they had a serial killer working in the Albuquerque area, they just didn't have any proof of it. Now, I always believe it's important to pay respect to those who are victims of crime, so we're gonna take the time to break down what we know about each and every victim instead of treating them like a number. I didn't wanna just go through and, and say, There was 11 women and keep referring to them as the victims. I I do want to bring their names up, uh, what little we know about them. And I am gonna reference the ones that are believed to have been involved in sex work, not to belittle them or to demean them at all. It's more to draw the connection to what, when we look at some suspects down the road, that there's a good chance that what happened to a known victim down the road is related to the fact that these women were verified to have worked in sex work at one point in their life. And the, the first one is going to be the one that is not believed to have been involved in sex work. And this is kind of one of the the ones that throws a little monkey wrench into some of the suspect theories here. But Jamie Barella was only 15 years old when she went missing. And she was last seen at a family gathering in April of 2004. She walked away from the gathering to visit a park with her cousin who's 27-year-old Evelyn Salazar and Evelyn would also later be identified as a victim and based on their actions that day it is believed that Jamie and Evelyn were not involved in sex work that day but had been abducted by the same person who killed the other women and this is because Jamie's body was found in very close proximity to another known victim of the killer and somewhat close to her cousin. And while Evelyn did have one prior arrest for sex work, Jamie had no criminal record. So I don't see any connection to actual sex work here. Yes, Evelyn had been arrested in the past for sex work, but you either have to believe that Evelyn brought her 15-year-old cousin away from a family gathering to go to a park to then engage in predetermined sex work activity in order to believe that this has a connection to sex work it, it doesn't make any sense that evelyn would bring jamie with her if evelyn knew that she was meeting some guy for for sex work if that was the case had, had evelyn just disappeared from this family function to walk to this park and then she ends up going missing and eventually her body is found she's got a history of it being work, in sex work i could see the argument for she left the family gathering for a predetermined arrangement. But when you involve the 15-year-old cousin, this is, again, something I can't put a finger on why Evelyn would take her 15-year-old cousin from a family gathering to go get involved in this type of work, especially when Jamie has no history of it. I honestly think this is the one case that's going to be different than the rest of them. I honestly think that these two women went to this park walking away from this family gathering, probably just to talk. One's 27, one's 15. The 15 year old might be looking for life advice from her older cousin. They may just be wanting to get away from this family gathering and talk about something. Maybe there's issues with the boyfriend. You know, again, you can speculate all you want about why they left this family gathering, but I really don't see any indicators that it was for sex work. So it's very likely that once they were away from the family gathering and isolated at this park that somebody came along and abducted both of them and then the fact that jamie is found in very close proximity almost sharing the same grave with a woman who was a known sex worker that was abducted and killed by the west mesa bone collector again you have to assume at that point then that it's the same person that has buried both of them had their graves been just happened to be within this 95 acre property i could see an argument for two different suspects one that happened to abduct two women not involved in sex work and bury their bodies in this west mesa just because it's convenient going to be some flat areas it's going to be easily accessible for people so somebody could argue that this was a dumping ground for two different serial killers especially because these women had different backgrounds than the rest. But the fact that Jamie is found in almost the same grave as another victim leads me to believe that it's the same killer. He just targeted women in a different fashion. Maybe he couldn't locate a sex worker that night and happened to drive by this park and see these two women alone in the park and and use that opportunity to abduct them and kill them. And 22-year-old Monica Candelaria was last seen in the area of 118th Street in Albuquerque. And this is actually how it's listed in, I think, both the official government site for Albuquerque and a bunch of the sites. So this area of 118th Street is actually the West Mesa area. And I did find another map that shows that most of these women were actually from a street in Albuquerque or had been picked up from a street in Albuquerque where sex work is common. And so I couldn't tell if this last known sighting at 118th Street is referring to where her body was located or whether this this other map got it wrong because 118th Street actually goes right by Interstate 40, which runs through Albuquerque. And there's a north side to this. I'm assuming it looks kind of like it's a truck stop area. So there's a possibility that these women were picked up on the 118th. It just happens that the body dump is not far from the area they were picked up at but anyway they're they're referred to at, by the albuquerque pd is the 118th street murders so again 118th street is the west mesa area the area the bodies are recovered but it's also possible that it's referring to the area they were last seen which again is also 118th street but that part appears like it was developed so maybe they were just picked up dropped off both in the 118th street area and this fits the pattern of somebody picking them up driving them to a location sexually assaulting them killing them and then as i've mentioned several times on my other podcasts people don't want to usually drive a long distance with a dead body in their vehicle there's a better chance they will get stopped by the police get investigated some the vehicle can break down So usually these people are trying to get rid of the body as quickly as possible, so if they were picked up in this other area, 118th Street, driven nearby, the crime occurs, it would make sense that they would be dumping them very close to the area they were picked up at, so again, maybe that's it's both a reference to where they're picked up and it just happens to be where they're located. And Monica was last in contact with friends in 2003 and did have a prior arrest for sex work. So we are going to start to see this pattern where these women, last seen in the area where sex work is common, they're, they have prior arrests for uh, sex work crimes, they're of roughly the same age, they're for the most part Hispanic, and the remains are going to be found in the West Mesa area. 26-year-old Victoria Chavez was last seen in the area of 118th Street sometime in 2004. Her mother reported her missing in March of 2005 after she hadn't heard from her daughter in over a year. Victoria had several prior arrests for sex work and was a known drug user. And, and again, I did see some references and websites that I think police do have more accurate dates to when these women were last seen. But most of the research out there, since this is still an open investigation, just lists rough dates for when these women were believed to have gone missing. And while one website says it's all 2001 through 2005, I think most websites have these women last seen between 2003 and 2005. So somewhere around that 2004, 2005, I think is is a more accurate description of when these crimes occurred and we are going to see with one of the suspects that that again this is going to cause some issues because we know the area is under development in 2006 so we'll talk about it later but whether these killings stop in 2006 some people believe because it's one of the suspects is killed some people believe it's because the area started to, to be developed and the the serial killer moved on to either new hunting grounds or new burial grounds 24-year-old Virginia Cloven lost her brother to homicide when she was 17. As a result, she moved out of her house and lived with relatives and eventually moved in with a boyfriend. When he was put into a coma after an accident, she lost her place to stay and it was believed she ended up on the streets and turned to sex work to survive. Virginia was supposed to meet with her father around June of 2004 but never showed up to a birthday lunch and she was reported missing in October of 2004. 15-year-old Solania Edwards was reported as an endangered runaway from Lawton, Oklahoma in 2003. By 2004, reports indicated she was in Aurora, Colorado, and had gotten involved in sex work. Investigators believe she was killed in late 2004 or early 2005 before being buried in the West Mesa. She was either 15 or 16 when she was killed, and she was the only known black victim of the serial killer. And again, this is what makes, I think... St- finding dates for these victims so difficult is police were actively looking for this Solania Edwards. She had a pretty sad story. I think her mother died from a drug overdose when she was a child, very young child, maybe like three years old. And so she had been a ward of the state for quite a while growing up in in foster home situations and, and government homes eventually leading to her running away at 15 years old and police were actively looking for her and this is where they get word that 2004 she's in Colorado and her presence in Albuquerque, New Mexico isn't even known before her body is discovered. So it's one of those things where as police are trying to trace these victims, it's not as if this is a 15 year old who ran away from home in Albuquerque, New Mexico on a specific date in 2004 this poor girl became involved in sex trafficking she's a victim of that being moved between different cities and it's that much harder for police to locate her so then when her body turns up they're working backwards to try to figure out when was she in albuquerque based on when she was last in colorado and she could have been anywhere in between so again it's it's very difficult for them to pinpoint some stuff during this investigation 32-year-old Cinnamon Elks was last seen in the area of 118th Street, was killed sometime around August 2004 before being buried in West Mesa. She had several prior arrests for sex work and was friends with three of the other victims. 27-year-old Doreen Marquez had two daughters but got involved with a boyfriend who was into drugs. Investigators believe Doreen got involved with drugs. When the boyfriend went to prison, she turned to sex work to support her daughters and her drug habit. She was kicked out of her sister's house for using drugs in 2003, but could have gone missing any time before 2005. And again, as we've talked about, these women, they become victims of this lifestyle, addicted to drugs, they need money for their next fix, they get involved in sex work, it makes them very high risk. Uh, family has two options, and that's to allow them to live with them and continue using drugs, which is enabling that lifestyle or in this case, kick them out. I think the the sister was watching her nieces, was kind of raising her sister's daughters in the house. So the daughters were in a good place, but the sister didn't want the mother around the daughters while she was using drugs. Said, you're welcome to come back here, but you have to be clean. And so as a result, Doreen is bouncing from house to house. She's living on the streets in Albuquerque. She's involved in the sex work. So again, trying to pinpoint a date is difficult because in normal missing persons reports, people not involved in sex work or the transient homeless lifestyle, they have specific last known dates or times. They miss a day or two of work. Well, you can narrow it down to the last time somebody saw them at work. They have social arrangements, uh, birthday parties they go to stuff along those lines that people can say the last time I saw Doreen was on this date at this time. Unfortunately, this lifestyle can tend to have people disappear from their loved ones for weeks, months, or even over a year. So the family members, unless the police can find another person within this line of work that can say the last time I saw Doreen was mid-April 2004, there's likely going to be a pretty big window in which the crime against Irene could have occurred. 24-year-old Julie Nito got hooked on drugs at 19 years old and turned to sex work to support her drug habit. She was last seen in August of 2004 and had been convicted for sex work four times between the ages of 19 and 24. 27-year-old Veronica Romero was reported missing by her family on Valentine's Day of 2004. Witnesses reported seeing Veronica get into a white pickup truck in 2004 and there was never seen alive again. And the last victim, 22-year-old Michelle Valdez, was four months pregnant when she was killed sometime between 2004 and 2005. She had gotten hooked on drugs in her late teens and would often disappear for days, weeks, or months before showing up and asking her father for money. He reported her missing in February of 2005. And this was pretty sad. I read some quotes from her father He said she would show up after weeks or months and he hadn't seen her or heard from her and she'd ask him for just a little bit of money just a little bit of cash and he admitted he knew that she was going to go spend that money on drugs but he said that it was worth it because that was when he got to see his daughter and he knew that if he gave her some money she'd keep coming back and that was his way of kind of keeping track of her. So even though he knew he was enabling her drug habit he knew that if he cut her off there was a good chance he might never see her again so he always was holding out hope she would come back and visit him again but after a period of time in which he felt like it had been too long she hadn't been back he reported her missing and this is part of that growing list of missing women if you see a lot of these families are reporting these women missing sometime in 2003 2004 2005. These bodies are not going to be found until 2009. So that's where this investigator with Albuquerque is seeing this big spike in missing persons reports back during this time period, but nobody knows where these women are, and it's going to be four, five, six years from the time they're reported missing until their bodies are recovered, until the Albuquerque police know not only were they killed, but they were all killed by the same person. that had, had a serial killer that was targeting sex workers back during this time period. While 11 bodies of missing women have been found, they were all believed to have been killed between 2003 and 2005. Investigators do believe more women, including some of the missing women from that list compiled by the detectives, are still out there. And I think there was at least two women on the list that were later found to be alive, and that can happen. You can have these transient people listed as, as missing, and then they show up because they did leave town and, and, and go to a different city. They were out of touch with loved ones for an extended period of time. So I think at least a couple of the women from that list were located. But again, there's nothing, you know, serial killers don't follow a set of rules. It's, it's not as if every single woman that they abducted and killed has to be buried in this West Mesa area. Investigators to this day don't know if the serial killer stopped because they were made to stop, as in they got arrested or they were killed, or whether they stopped because the development started. and They didn't stop killing, they just stopped burying women in this area, knowing that eventually this area was going to be developed and these bodies would be located. However, after looking at the bodies of the women, investigators would know that the women had been buried for years, as their bodies had become mostly skeletonized, a process that does take years. But they went back in time and used images taken by satellites for imaging websites such as Google Earth and located disturbed soil and tire marks that indicated someone was actively burying the bodies at the site between 2003 and 2005. And this is both intriguing and disturbing at the same time. That you can go back and look at these satellite images of the West Mesa and you can see that somebody is driving across the desert and at that time it wasn't developed yet. So it's just this kind of flat rocky sagebrush filled area of sand and you can actually see where somebody drove to a site and then you can see how the ground looks different and that was partially how they were able to find a lot of these bodies in a relatively quick amount of time because even though they say 95 acres and some people might think that's not a very big area to have to search, 95 acres is a pretty significant amount of space and you have to move a lot of dirt, which they did, but you have to they had to move a lot of dirt to find these 11 bodies. It wasn't as if they were all in one single location. They were kind of spread out across the West Mesa. Some were closer. There was one site that had multiple bodies in it but some of these were spread out and so they used these google earth images or other satellite images to pinpoint some locations where they thought they might find some bodies and more often than not they were correct they would find remains where these tire tracks and disturbed soil was located and the activity uh, via the satellite stopped in 2005 which likely would have been around the time the site was starting to be surveyed for development And the killer, as I mentioned before, may have moved on from the site. And there may be another mass grave somewhere that hasn't been discovered, somewhere further outside the area. So even though we're now almost 20 years removed from when these women started going missing, again, since investigators can't tell for sure whether this suspect is no longer active or wasn't active after 2005, there is still a chance that as this Albuquerque, West Mesa area continues to, to grow, that they could come across another dumping ground for missing women. And if they do find remains that exist for missing people after a certain date, that might rule out some suspects, or it might mean that somebody started a second killing spree. Again, there's for how much is known about this case, there's also a lot of unknowns, and there probably will be the discovery of of more bodies somewhere in the area uh, in the future. And investigators have three steps to this investigation. First they had to find as many victims remains as they could. Then they had to identify the women and find out when they were last seen alive and finally they needed to locate a suspect. And several suspects have been looked at over the years. We'll go through them one by one and discuss the reasons they may or may not be the killer responsible for these crimes. A man named Ron Irwin was looked at early in the investigation. He was 56 at the time and lived in Joplin, Missouri. While this seems to make him a far-fetched candidate, investigators learned he traveled to Albuquerque often for his work as a photographer. He liked to capture photographs of the street life in the city, and as part of the old Route 66, the city had both a modern and historic feel and is known for being a melting pot of cultures that make up the urban landscape. Ron was particularly good at capturing the human element and often took photos of people living on the streets, which often included sex workers. Some of his photos featured women sleeping or possibly unconscious, and investigators realized it was possible the serial killer was someone who frequented the city and may have been trusted by those on the streets. He stopped visiting the city in 2006 around the time the murder stopped. So again, this is everything on paper that made him look like a good suspect, you have that photographer angle, which we've covered before, as in like the case of the Butcher Baker in Alaska. He would often offer these sex workers or topless dancers a private photo session with him, and he would use that as a ruse to get them alone and then kill them. And so investigators are looking at, okay, well, why did these murders stop in 2005, 2006? And and why... What rationale can we use to say these all these women potentially went willingly with this person, and then now, again, the, the murders have stopped. And so they locate this man who, after talking with people on the street, say, hey, here's this guy. He used to take photos of these women. He stopped showing up around the time that the, the murder stopped, and... He's worth looking into and then of course when police look into his photographs and they see they've got he's got these pictures of women and you can't tell in a photograph whether somebody is sleeping or unconscious or dead even because your photographs a snapshot in time, doesn't show breathing, doesn't show anything like that, they start to think, do we have this sick photographer who's come down here and, and murdered these sex workers? And when Ron learned he was a suspect, he obtained a lawyer who advised him not to conduct any interviews with the police. Investigators then responded by obtaining a search warrant for his property, and through his lawyer he was able to provide an alibi of being in Joplin on some of the dates the victims were last seen alive. He did agree to a polygraph and passed and was ruled out as a suspect in the case. Unfortunately, the naming of him as a suspect was a nightmare experience for the man. Ron said the entire investigation was based on faulty assumptions, as he had stopped traveling to Albuquerque by 2006, but that was because he was doing international photography. He also said that he didn't do much street photography from 2001 through 2006, as he only went to Albuquerque for the state fair during those years. He said while he did take photos of sleeping women, he also took them of sleeping men, but that was overlooked by police at the time. As mentioned before, Ron is not considered to have any connection to the case. So, again, this is one of those that on paper you can talk yourself into this guy being a really good suspect just based on on some real surface level information about the guy. But as you dig a little bit deeper, you find out, hey, not only is he taking pictures of sleeping women, which is, again, some people would see as kind of creepy, he's taking it of sleeping men. He's not, these photos aren't from the time period in which the majority of the women go missing in fact he's not even in albuquerque most of the time he's he's only attending a, he's only traveling to albuquerque for a, a very short amount of time and they're able to confirm that most of the time he was in joplin including the time they believe that some of these women were missing so he's ruled out after first looking like a pretty good suspect he's he's ruled out completely within a short amount of time it's just unfortunate that the assumptions were made and granted police do have to follow up on on every lead on every suspect it's just unfortunate that sometimes that can completely ruin somebody's life as it, as ron claims it did for him and a man named fred reynolds was well known by a lot of the victims as he acted as their pimp at times during their careers as sex workers and he was actually looking for some of the women when the bodies were discovered and this put the spotlight on him during the early parts of the investigation and Fred died shortly after the discovery of the bodies from natural causes. And we talk a lot about motive, means and opportunity. And Fred had the means and opportunity to kill the women, but there really didn't appear to be any motive and his actions of looking for the women seemed to indicate he was actually trying to find them and was not involved in their murders. And that's difficult. You have a guy who clearly, you know, if we set morality aside here, he is looking for these women. It's not for the reason most people would wish that he was looking for these women. But really, what would be the motive for him to kill all of these women? You know, some people might say it's part of the business or whatever it might be. But in reality, him killing these sex workers would hurt him financially and he just doesn't seem to be the type of guy that would put on this elaborate scheme of of killing sex workers that work for him and then pretending to look for them afterwards it just the whole thing doesn't quite add up there's there's too many things like the lack of motive and his actions and i'm I'm guessing in speaking with other sex workers that just didn't make him a, a super viable suspect in the end and Albuquerque PD claims they continue to look into the case as they are still receiving new tips and leads. They are constantly checking out new suspects and determining the probability that they are involved in the crime. However, these last two suspects we will cover are considered by many to be the most likely two candidates for these crimes. The first man, Joseph Leah, was given the nickname the mid-school rapist for a series of sexual assaults he perpetrated against younger women during the 1980s. He targeted 13 to 15-year-old girls breaking into their homes near McKinley Middle School in Albuquerque and sexually assaulted them. He was able to get away with these crimes until an untested sexual assault kit from one of the crimes was located in 2010 and his DNA that was just entered in 2008 after he committed an act of domestic violence against his wife matched the DNA from that untested sexual assault kit. Unfortunately, law enforcement at first could not pursue charges against Blaya for the sexual assault as it had occurred in 1988 and was past the statute of limitations but the new mexico supreme court passed a ruling that made sexual assault and several other crimes chargeable no matter the length of time since the crime and he's actually going to be the suspect in a lot of crimes it was determined that he likely followed these 13 to 15 year old girls home he lived right by the middle school so it was believed that he actually physically followed these girls home and working on the assumption that they were going to be home after school alone for a couple hours before their parents came home, he would often break into the house or follow them right into the house wearing a mask, and then he would sexually assault them at knife point. And so they they believed there was probably dozens of victims, and not a lot of girls came forward. They were shamed or scared to report this, but one of them that did had this sexual assault kit completed on her and that dna for whatever reason had never been tested and so when it was put into the system in 2010 they found joseph blaze dna from his crime against his wife matched up and then it said he was also a suspect in the killing of a sex worker during the 1980s and it was also said that he was potentially he was for sure a suspect in the sexual assault of his stepdaughter and ultimately, he's, I think he gets put on trial for three different charges in 2015, and he was ultimately convicted of the 1988 sexual assault, and he was sentenced to 36 years in prison. And while in prison, he's made phone calls to his wife during which she claimed to have found jewelry and underwear that didn't belong to her and items that belonged to Joseph And many of the sex workers that knew the West Mesa victims recalled seeing Joseph picking up women from the area that the women went missing from, and therefore he had the means and opportunity to commit the crime. His wife also remembered her husband leaving in the middle of the night during the time of the West Mesa killings to dump trash from his business, and this area that he dumped the trash was in West Mesa. And the only piece of physical evidence from the case was a plastic tag for some landscaping that was found buried with one of the bodies. Joseph ran a landscaping business and was known to buy from the nursery associated with the tag. And I think there's something like five other girls have come forward and identified Joseph Blea as a man who sexually assaulted them in the past. So this is a guy that clearly has committed a lot of crimes in his past and... He was known to have picked up sex workers. He's accused of killing the sex worker. And I don't know where that case is because it's said that there was DNA evidence from that crime that linked Joseph to the crime. But I haven't seen anything about charges or anything related. And unfortunately, it might be a case where because the victim was a sex worker, just finding his DNA on the sex worker's clothing, Isn't a strong enough link to say that he's the one that killed her, but if he's linked at least to one killing of a sex worker, again, that's where people don't have a have any issue jumping to the conclusion that he's possibly involved with these other killings. And then this plastic tag—I assume it's one of those description slash instructional tags that come with. I think in this case, like a little juniper tree. And so it would have the species of the tree and on the back it would have whether it's supposed to be planted in the shade or the sun and how hardy it is and and different things on there and i think it was one of those tags was found and i want to say one site said it was buried like several feet deep with the body and if that's the case that's pretty strong evidence that at least in the case of that body it's very possible that he was involved in these killings but we're also going to look at another suspect who's has similar if not stronger evidence against him for being involved and this is actually we'll go to 2006 just after the west mesa killing stopped a man named lorenzo montoya was shot and killed he had hired 19 year old sharika hill an exotic dancer to come to his trailer and show him a good time she was brought to the trailer by her 18 year old pimp slash boyfriend and this was probably a fact not known to Lorenzo. After Sharika failed to exit the trailer in a reasonable time, the woman's boyfriend walked to the door and encountered Lorenzo dragging Sharika's lifeless body towards his truck. She had been strangled to death by an intricately braided rope made from duct tape. Seeing Sharika had been murdered, the boyfriend pulled out a gun and fired one shot at Lorenzo, striking him in the leg and severing an artery. Lorenzo bled to death as police arrived on scene. Lorenzo was no stranger to Albuquerque PD. In 1999, undercover officers had watched a known sex worker get into his truck and followed the vehicle as it drove a few miles away. It pulled over under a bridge and after a few minutes, the officers approached the truck. The officers found that Lorenzo was committing a sexual assault on the woman. They had agreed upon oral sex and Lorenzo had forced himself upon the woman. He also had only $2 in cash, indicating he was either planning on not paying the woman or killing her. All charges were dropped after the sex worker stopped cooperating with the investigation. During the years between that incident and the night he killed Sharika Hill and then subsequently was killed, he bragged to co-workers about killing prostitutes and claimed the West Mesa was a big area. There were dirt trails between his house and the mass grave where the bodies were found and the distance from his house to the main burial site was only 1.5 miles. The killings and burials appeared to stop after he killed Sharika Hill, and then he himself was killed, and the rash of missing sex workers also stopped during the time period between Lorenzo's death and the discovery of the burial site. While this case is unsolved, many believe Lorenzo Montoya was the serial killer responsible for the West Basin Boneyard. That could also explain the inability for Albuquerque PD to find a stronger suspect in the 14 years since the discovery of the bones. However, that doesn't make proving he committed the murders any easier, and this is one of those cases that may suffer due to two viable suspects with no evidence to point to who actually committed the crimes. And so this is the very difficult thing for investigators, is let's say you decide, okay, we're going to go to trial with Joseph. We're going to take him to trial for these killings. We have this landscaping tag. We have... potential history of him involved in killing sex workers we have him with jewelry and property and i would assume that if that was actually able to be linked to any of the victims there would be charges but again i don't know where that is at in, in terms of the investigation this is still a a open investigation that they're not releasing information from so i would assume if they had a way to link him to any of the West Mesa victims that he would likely be charged with the crimes. But even if he gets charged with the crimes, his defense lawyer is going to jump on the internet within five seconds, they're gonna say, but look at this Montoya guy. And if they get to a trial in front of a jury, that is going to be the story that is going to be told is the police have the wrong person in custody. The, The person who committed these killings was killed in 2006 you can't prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Lorenzo Montoya was not responsible for these killings and unless there is direct evidence that links Joseph to one of these victims it's always going to be a other guy defense in this case but it's going to be the same way if the police try to pin this all on the deceased Lorenzo Montoya there's going to always be the question do we have the right guy he's not alive anymore As far as we know again there's no evidence to directly link him to any of these crimes we just know that he has a prior history of assaulting sex workers picking them up and assaulting them he's talked about killing them there's these dirt trails between his place and where the bodies are discovered there's evidence that when he killed sharika hill this intricately braided duct tape rope that he strangled her with the investigator said this is looks like a device that he would have made before he would have killed other people with and again these women are discovered so far past the point that they were buried that the cause of death these women isn't known so they can't rule out the fact that they could have been strangled and and this duct tape rope would be something that would be easy for him to make and either get rid of or reuse or anything along those lines so this really is one of those cases where Unfortunately, unless investigators can find a more viable suspect, this case may never be considered closed, and that unfortunately means there are 11 families out there that will never get any closer in the form of true justice. I usually say that time will tell, and often if I do have a feeling a case will be solved in the future, I'll say that, but this is one of those cases that I think will haunt Albuquerque and investigators forever. I really hope I'm wrong. I'm not placing any bets down that this won't be solved or, or, or they won't get to the bottom of this, but I'm just really hoping that someday that will happen. But it just it's one of those cases that I feel like because of the circumstances, because of having almost, in this case, too many suspects, too much time between the, the killings and the discoveries of the bodies, that this is one of those cases that may never be solved. But that is the case of the West Mesa Bone Collector. Thank you guys for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at truebluecrimeproductions@gmail.com. at gmail.com. You can also find me at True Blue Crime Productions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at TrueBlueCrimeProductions. So that's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.